The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I've been sharing with you day by day the story of Moses as he brought the children of Israel out of captivity. Now, the reason this story is so important is you have to know the history in order to understand the day in which we live. There's nothing new under the sun. And as we look at the scripture and understand the history, we can begin to get a large overview of what God is about, where he's going, how it will all end. He took them to Mount Sinai. And there, God spoke with the children of Israel. He terrified them. He terrified Moses. 
On that mountain, he spoke what we know as the law, the Ten Commandments, written on tables of stone with the finger of God, placed in the Ark of the Covenant. I've been sharing with you day by day the Ten Commandments, one by one. Today we come to my favorite commandment. I love the law of God. I love the law of God. I meditate on it. It points me to Jesus. That's what Paul said in the book of Galatians. The law leads us to Jesus. It's impossible to be a Christian without coming face to face with the law. It is a transcript of God's own character. It is who he is. And this law in the new covenant is written in our hearts so that it's not something strange to us. It's actually what the Holy Spirit puts in us so that as we live out our life in Christ, we live that life out in accord with the will of God. Now, I love the law of God. Let's be very clear about that. But there is one of the Ten Commandments that is more precious to me than any of the others. It is hidden right in the center of the Decalogue. Now, let me be clear with you. The law is a shadow of what is to come. It is a shadow of Jesus Christ. But let's talk about this fourth commandment. It is the most precious of all of the Ten Commandments to my heart. For it is what speaks of the eternal joy to be experienced in Jesus. I want to read it for you. It begins with the word remember. Now, in the Hebrew, the word remember does not mean to bring to intellectual remembrance as it would mean in the English language. When I studied Greek and I had a Greek exam, I had to bring to memory what I had memorized and regurgitate that on the test in order to pass the exam. That's not what this word remember means. This word remember in the Hebrew means to bring fully to mind the experience, tasting, smelling, the fullness of the experience of what happened in that time and in that place, to relive it, if you please. And so it begins with, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Perhaps we should just leave that for a moment and come back to Genesis 
the second chapter. I'm going to begin reading with verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So on the seventh day, at the end of creation, God rested from all of his work. And God blessed this seventh day, and he made it holy. So we come to the commandment in Exodus, the 20th chapter, remember the Sabbath day, remember the creation. And you remember it by keeping this day holy. That is, you keep it by setting it apart for a special purpose. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or your maidservant, nor your animal, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Now this is right in the center of the Decalogue, of the law. What I'm going to show you in Scripture is that the Sabbath is really Jesus. He is my Sabbath. It is into Jesus that I enter. But I'm going to show you that in the scriptures. I'm not going to just say that. I was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, much of what they taught, I do not find in the scriptures. And because of that, I left that denomination because I was taught that I should read the scriptures, and if it disagreed with the scriptures, it was false. And I found very key doctrinal positions in the Seventh-day Adventist church that were not biblical. Things like what they call the investigative judgment. It's not to be found in the scriptures. That Sunday-keeping is the mark of the beast. That's not found in the scriptures. That Ellen White, their prophetess, is spoken of in the book of Revelation. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, that's an utter wicked twisting of the scriptures. But one thing I did treasure among other things and that was my experience as a child growing up in a seventh-day adventist home we kept the sabbath from sundown friday night until sundown saturday night before the sabbath hours came on friday night everyone was to have had a bath clothes were prepared for the sabbath It was my job to polish the shoes of the family, 
So I would spread newspaper on the floor and get the brushes and the black polish. And I would polish mom and dad's shoes and my brother's shoes. It was Sabbath coming, and we were excited. The house always had the wonderful aroma of of cooked food. Dad was cooking it. I remember he always made this delicious coconut pudding. I can still taste it just mentioning it. Sabbath was very special. We would go to church in the morning, on Sabbath morning, after a special breakfast. And then in the afternoon, often with my mother, we would wander the woods and we would collect the hepatica, which is the first flower of the spring in western Pennsylvania. And we'd collect flowers all summer, and we would press them and put them in books. We learned to identify the trees, the birds, the animals. Dad said nature was the second book, the Bible being first, nature being second. This precious time with family, I cherish even to this day. Sabbath was a day for a nap, for long walks, for rides. It was a time of reading the Bible, listening to Mother read classic missionary stories aloud, The joy the Sabbath brought me was really, truly, my introduction. My introduction to the joy of knowing Jesus. Now, many people, other than Seventh-day Adventists, keep the Seventh-day Holy, the Seventh-day Baptist, and others. And some have asked me, Pastor, you were raised as a Seventh-day Adventist. You were raised keeping the Sabbath holy. Are you keeping the Sabbath holy now? And my answer to them is, yes, I am. But you'll begin to understand that as we move through scriptures. Now, I'm not going to go fast. I want to go step by step with you. And I want to open for your understanding and your consideration some truth that is so mind-blowing and so filled with rejoicing. Let me begin in the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 7. And it was given to it to make war against the holy ones, that is, the beast power, the Antichrist. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people, tongue 
and nation. And all the ones dwelling on the earth will worship it, the name of whom has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, the one having been slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus dying on the cross was not an afterthought by God. It was part of the plan before the creation took place. I want you to get the picture. Satan was the most powerful of the seraph angels, the angel of fire. This powerful being turned evil. There's no explanation for it. There is no explanation for sin. If there were, it would not be sin. There's not a reason for rebellion against the Almighty God. But he rebelled. And he began to spread his poison root throughout the beings of heaven, the angels. And he convinced a third of them that God was wrong and that he was right that God was unjust, that he was unfair. They complained against the Most High. And then they made the decision that they would replace God and that Lucifer would become the new God. We see that rising in the Western world today. In the New Age movement, in the progressive movement, in the communist movement, Lucifer rules. Now, there was war in heaven. Satan and his angels were cast out. But now the problem exists. The character of God has been questioned. And God cannot simply destroy the devil. He has to demonstrate who he is, what his character is, what his nature is. And so he creates the weakest of all of his beings, and he calls them human. He makes them in his image but they have no power of their own. And God begins to plan that, yes, Satan will seduce them. They will fall. But if they fall, God will intervene. And he will pay the price. He will lay his life down for his bride. Now, this is the most astonishing astonishing truth of the Bible, that God, by design, created Adam and Eve to bring forth a race that would become the bride of Christ, that he would demonstrate once and for all the character of God. Now, Satan, seeing this weak creation, scorned them, and determined to seduce them. And he came 
as the serpent. He came as the dragon. He lied to Eve and he seduced her. And Adam went along with it. And they fell. They changed their loyalty from the one who came every evening in the cool of the evening to fellowship with them, to court them. An imposter swept in. I remember I was in high school and this beautiful young lady came in the midterm in our boarding high school in Mount Vernon, Ohio. And when I saw her, I fell madly in love. Christmas was coming. She was to sing for the Christmas program for the school. She was a beautiful, beautiful soloist. We could put Christmas gifts under the tree. So I asked her for a date for that evening, and she said yes. And I was enthralled. Had a wonderful time with this young woman. And when they began to call the names of the people who had gifts under the tree, and everyone had a gift under the tree, they called her name. Instead of just one gift, there was another gift from an anonymous giver, yours truly. I was afraid to put my name on it. It was a bottle of very expensive, classy perfume. Chanel number one. I had spent all I had to purchase that Chanel number one. She was thrilled with it. We said good night. And the next day we left on Christmas vacation. I was so excited through that Christmas vacation, I could hardly wait to get back to ask this young lady for another date. We got back, and before I could ask her, another young man approached her, and I discovered that he had been there through the entire vacation, and that during the vacation they had come together, and they were now what we used to call going steady. Well, he later married her. They had a tragic life. They had children. I lost track. I never spoke to Sonia again after that betrayal. I considered it a bitter betrayal, for we had agreed that we would be friends and that when I came back, we would have another date. Sonia betrayed me. I was utterly heartbroken as a young high school boy. Puppy love, but oh, pierced my heart. Do you understand when that serpent came and seduced Eve? It 
bitterly pierced the heart of God. He knew it was going to happen, but it pierced his heart. It makes me vow that never do I want to pierce the heart of Jesus. Never do I want in any manner to cause him sorrow. He is the one who bore my sin to the cross. He is my atoning sacrifice. He is the lover of my soul. He is to be my husband. I want to share several other passages of Scripture with you. Let's look at 1 Peter. You may want to jot these passages down and go back to them. And please, I'm not going to hurry. If it takes us two days to get through this, that's all right. We have all week. Turn with me, please, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, the first chapter, I'm going to begin reading with verse 17. 1 Peter, the first chapter, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, the one judging impartially according to the work of each one, you must conduct yourselves with reverent awe during the time of your sojourn knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, silver or gold, out from your vain conduct handed down from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without defect, he having been foreknown before the foundation of the world, but having become known, in the last of these times for your sake. Again, before the foundation of the world, Jesus, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, made the decision that Jesus would be the sin-bearer. Now please, if you look at Colossians, the first chapter, you look at Hebrews, the first chapter. You look at the Gospel of John, the first chapter. You will find that Jesus is the Creator God, and it was He who stood and spoke to Moses from Mount Sinai. Pre-incarnate is the technical term. Now, look with me at Second Timothy, the first chapter. I'm going to begin reading with verse 8. This is 2 Timothy, the first chapter, beginning reading with verse 8. You may not, therefore, be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me, his prisoner. But you must suffer together with me for the gospel by the power of God, the one having saved us and having called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, having been given to us in Christ Jesus 
before the eons of time, but having now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who on the one hand, having destroyed death, and on the other, having brought to light life and immortality through the gospel. Again, before time, it was decided that Jesus would die for us. Now, Ephesians, the first chapter, let me begin reading for you in verse 4. Just as he and no other picked us out in him before the foundation of the world for us to be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us unto sonship through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he highly favored us in the one having been beloved. We were appointed, and I'm not going to get into the argument of predestination. It's not the issue here. The issue is that Jesus, before the foundation of the world, chose you to be holy to be filled with his presence, to be righteous. Now, Galatians, the second chapter. Because of law, I died to the law in order that I may live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and still am. On the other hand, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The one having loved me and having handed himself over on my behalf. Now go to chapter 3, verse 23. Now before the faith came, we used to be kept under law having been shut up to the faith, being destined to be revealed, so that the law has been a guide to Christ, that we may be made righteous by faith. But after the faith having come, we are no longer under a guide. We're no longer under the law. We have received sonship, in Jesus Christ. Now, let me say just a few things about that before I take the next step with you. There are those who are called antinomians. They believe that the law was done away with. I do not believe the law was done away with. But I do not believe that righteousness comes to us through the law. Righteousness comes to us by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Righteousness is a free gift. I could turn to many passages of Scripture and show you this. And I may need to do that tomorrow. If you need to see those, leave a note in the chat line. And tomorrow I'll go to those. 
But it's very clear to me that the law is still binding upon all of the human race. And any person who sins is under the condemnation of the law. Grace is never used in Scripture as a covering over sin. In the Old Testament, it is a covering because no sin could be removed, forgiven, until Jesus died on Calvary. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 9 and 10, could not remove by forgiveness the sin of the human heart. It took the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the most powerful element in all of the universe. It is in Jesus' hands to apply the blood. Now, there is a great difference between the atoning blood of Jesus at the cross and the benefits that that atoning blood affords us. Jesus is now in the temple in heaven applying to every person who will repent and turn from their sin. He applies the precious blood he shed on Calvary, his real blood. Now, we're told that the new covenant is that the law is to be written in our hearts It is not the Ten Commandments from which we gain righteousness. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that we receive righteousness. It is real righteousness. It is not imputed righteousness. It's not pretend righteousness. It's imparted righteousness. It is total regeneration. It is total restoration to what Adam was before he fell. Sin is removed, and the old man is destroyed in the heart of the believer. Now, I'm going to turn, because some of you may question that statement. I'm going to turn to that statement in the book of Romans, in the NIV, to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Chapter 6. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is a real baptism. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we also certainly will be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that old self was crucified with him. Don't tell me the old man of sin was not crucified with Christ and that you still carry that old man of sin. 
If you still carry the old man of sin, you have not been born again. So that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, let me continue reading. In the sixth chapter. I'm, I'm looking for it very quickly. I not plan to go into this, but I need to for your sake. Um, if we look in the sixth chapter, it tells us, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. In other words, sin is not your master. Righteousness in Jesus. This is what he gives to us. We don't do that anymore. Read carefully that whole sixth chapter. I'm not going to spend any more time on the sixth chapter because there's too much else I want to get to regarding this Sabbath issue. But what I want, what I want you to begin to catch is this incredible long-term approach that the Lord God of heaven has as we come to the question of salvation and to the Sabbath. Now, if you look, the Sabbath was given to Adam and Eve. When they sinned, God no longer came and walked with them in the cool of the evening. They lost the Sabbath day. There's no record from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve until the children of Israel are in the wilderness. There is no record of any Sabbath keeping. There's no record that Abraham kept the Sabbath. Now, you could say, Pastor, you're, you're preaching now from silence. Yes, I am, but also from understanding of what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath was the gift of God to allow us to enter into his rest. Now, what does the rest, what does the word rest mean in both the Hebrew and the Greek? It means the same thing. Rest, Sabbath, means cessation, stop working, stop. Well, where do I go when I stop working? 
I go to bed at night. I go to rest. The Sabbath is going. If you look carefully at the Hebrew and the Greek words, rest is literally the bedroom of God. The bedroom of God. Now, we speak in the English language. We use this word to know. And between a husband and a wife, to know is to be sexually joined as one. But with Jesus, to be known is to be spiritually made one with Jesus. That's what Romans 6 is talking about. Becoming one with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Now, what I want you to see, there is absolutely no biblical evidence for Sunday keeping. That may come as a surprise to some of you. Oh, but pastor, it's the day of the resurrection. Yes, it is the day of the resurrection, but so what? We are not commanded to keep Sunday as a celebration of the resurrection. That's all human tradition. It's human foolishness. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. So, where do we go from there? Well, some of you have tried to keep Sunday as the Sabbath. That's foolishness. It's non-biblical. It was done by the Catholic Church many years ago as they claimed the authority to change from the Sabbath to Sunday to prove their authority. And the Protestant Church just rolled right along with the Catholic Church, as they have done in a number of areas. And it's a lie. So what do we do with Sabbath? That was very difficult for me because I was raised as a Sabbath keeper. Sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. That was a time of intimacy with Jesus. And so we look all through the scriptures and Sabbath was kept one day a week all through the Old Testament from the time of the children of Israel forward. It was the sign that God had brought them out of bondage. It was the sign that he was the creator God. But when we come to the New Testament, yes, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He was under the Old Covenant. Yes, the disciples worshipped on Sabbath. Yes, the disciples did many things that were Jewish. They kept Yom Kippur. They kept the feasts. They kept special days. They kept Sabbath. So where do we go with the Sabbath? And, and how can I possibly begin to say that the Sabbath is Jesus? 
will go with me to Hebrews, the third chapter. We're not going to get very far. We're going to have to come back to this tomorrow because we're running out of time. But I want to tell you that the most precious truth of my life is the Sabbath. Because Jesus was foreshadowed by the fourth commandment. And he is my Lord. He is my Savior. He was Lord of the Sabbath, he said. He could say that because he was the Sabbath. There is not one place in the New Testament where it teaches about how to keep the Sabbath day one day a week. There is instruction on every other one of the Ten Commandments, the nine. But there's not one word on how to keep the seventh-day Sabbath in the New Covenant. Again, that's an argument from silence. But I'm going to go much further with you tomorrow as we look carefully at Hebrews, the third and fourth chapters. What I want you to begin to catch a hold of is the truth that Jesus, from the foundation of the world, was slain. The plan was there. Now, the devil, when he seduced Adam and Eve, thought he had captured them for eternity. But Jesus knew that by laying down his life, he could save his bride. Satan had no inclination that that could ever happen. Because Satan is only about himself. And Jesus is only about us. He's not about himself. And I tell you, the Lord has been for quite some time dealing with me on this issue. Ray, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. There's such a a war going on in every human heart to have what it wants, to be successful. It's about me and what I want and what I think and what I believe. No, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And Jesus says, it's about you. And he died for me. And he died for you. He laid his life down for his bride, for the love of his life. Did you know you are the love of God's life for eternity? If you will surrender, if you will turn to him and repent of your sin, if you will be baptized into his death and resurrected into his life, You'll be the love of his heart for eternity. Well, we're out of time for today. Thank you for joining me. I pray that this has been helpful, and tomorrow we're going to wrap this up with the most stunning conclusion, the most exciting and powerful statement 
of the grace of Jesus Christ, of his love for you. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I want to thank my dear brother, Mike. Thank you. I just saw you posted your offering for this broadcast that we could stay on the air. Theodore, thank you for what you gave. Lisa, that was like $10,000. Thank you. God bless you, my dear sister. I pray that you have been encouraged today and I pray it will become much clearer for you tomorrow. Please invite someone to listen with you. I am praying that this broadcast will go viral across America with YouTubes and podcasts. Would you join me in praying that? It's time for the American church to repent. It's time for America to repent, to get right with Jesus. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon.